Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, we continue our eight-episode miniseries on Netflix's hip-hop evolution documentary. Nate is joined by Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson, his cohorts from the YouTube show If the Shoes Fit. This week, they discuss the third episode of hip-hop evolution, The New Guard, which covers the rise of Run DMC, Def Jam Records, Eric B. and Rakim, and Public Enemy. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and this evening I'm joined by Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson to continue our discussion of Netflix's Hip Hop Evolution series. Tonight we're on episode three. It's the first of two parts. There'll be one part on the Let It Roll podcast. This is... Uh, now I've lost the title of the show. It's, oh, it's yeah, classic. Come yeah, on, yeah. start heckling me. Heckling me. It's the new boy. boy. Yeah, cue the clown music. There you go. Yes. All right. The new guard, which takes us from the Sugar Hill Gang days into the Russell Simmons era, the beginning of the golden age of hip hop. First, general thoughts on the episode. Gentlemen, Alexi, you can go first. Man, Russell Simmons really looked like shit when he was younger. It's like one of these things I look at, I was like, God damn. Like, you know, it's just a totally different person that and then also i think it's interesting how many of the folks were college boys that was mm-hmm. interesting as well uh and um looking at stylistically looking at how people were dressing that whole transition for you know curtis Flo was on stage with his little you know suit on that was great right and then you see people in the crowd and it kind of just just looking at people in the crowd and seeing how the the dressing changed uh just made you realize how much more accessible the music was when people were dressing just like regular people dress like that kind of dynamic so and and we'll get to that what some i think it was nelson george called that uh russell simmons biggest contribution Mm -hmm. to hip-hop eugene your general thoughts um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I, I can't let it pass that we don't ever mention his recent Me Too problems. So, you know, uh, his significant so, Me significant Too problems that yeah, apparently yeah. have him hiding out on an island off the, yeah offshore. Yeah. So, an abandoned so, island, an abandoned private island. I don't know. Yeah. It's abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> it used to belong, with used the to initials of J E right? that owned yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> Island. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Um, but but in any case, I I enjoyed this quite a lot actually. As you've noted, that I watched it before all of you did. Oh, dude. I was I was eager e- eager because I knew it had something to do with Rakim, and uh, uh, there was some bullshit detecting that I wanted to, to try to do because they had a whole bunch with Rick Rubin, and I, and I, I I remember I remember, and this is like a, a major life lesson for me standing on Houston and Second Avenue by this club called Two Plus Two, 
And, you know, Rick had found out that I was like this guy from California, even though really I wasn't. I was in a California band, but I was a Brooklyn guy. And he corrals me and he spent like an hour talking to me about his musical plans. And in my head, I listened very patiently and I was very nice. But I was like, you know, I'd already spent enough time in California where I knew how to recognize a blowhard, you know, a dream, a dream master, a guy who's got a lot of talk. What makes Sammy run? He's going to do this and he's going to do that. And I, I think what, what tricked me is that his band at the time was called Hose, that they were just a, a flipper copy band, essentially, but without any of the brio that made Flipper great. So how could I take this guy seriously, you know, at all about anything? But all this shit that he was saying to me, he said to Russell Simmons and he said apparently to Russell Simmons repeatedly and said to anybody who would listen and somebody as evidenced by like, if you just say things enough times, sometimes they become true. Right. And the guy is, uh, uh, I couldn't have been more wrong in that instance, but it wasn't even like an aggressive take. It was just like, I meet a lot of motor mouth guys, you know, who like have big dreams. In this instance, the guy followed it up with being right place, right time. So it was really interesting to see how that, that fell into place. All right. And so let's get into a little summary of the show. First, we talk about they start with Russell Simmons. You know, they do they have the motif where they they give people the cartoon introduction if they're going to be a major topic. And Russell Simmons is the first of those on the episode. And they dive right in. I mean, you know, they they go to Hollis Queens where he grew up. He gives the sociological background of Hollis where, Queens. Where which, I was born. You were born uh, in Hollis Queens. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so and then you moved to Brooklyn. Um then I moved to Ozone Park, then Jamaica, then uh, New Rochelle, then Brooklyn. Wow. I see. So a Long Island guy from way back <laughs> all the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess you could and, say that. Yeah. And so as, as Russell says, Hollis was a lower middle class, primarily African-American neighborhood that there it were- It became so after I moved out. Yes. It was white flight, which you partook in. And, uh, <laughs> and then like, it fuck became... these broke niggas. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, exactly. We're, locust. we're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> and then it becomes the locus of Queen's heroin problem right on the corner. And he gets in there, starts selling marijuana, and they sort of deport him. His family deports him to City College in Manhattan, and he discovers hip-hop, and his life changes and he, he he becomes a party promoter and soon a manager. And Curtis Blow is a guy he meets in college, and boom, they're off and running. And I love the story. They tell a story of how they got rejected by 22 labels with their first record, Christmas Rap, which is, I, I got to admit, I think still Happy. my favorite hip-hop. Uh, it's, it's my favorite hip-hop Christmas song, <laughs> even better than the one run DMC label. Oh, I, oh man. You know, I mean – I don't know. I like the old school stuff. Any I, any video with a dwarf in it saying "naughty, nice, <laughs> naughty, nice." Little left. <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, know right. how to you. Right. But they 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 tricked the legendary DJ Frankie Crocker into thinking <laughs> that it was a hit by paying a D. They found out what club he hung out at. And then they paid the DJ to play the record as soon as he sat down to the bar and they brought their whole crew who go crazy on cue as soon as the record drops. Crocker falls for it, plays the record on Christmas Day, and boom, they're off uh, in Amsterdam. Next thing they know, and, and, and he's made it. But it's not the record he wants to make. Any thoughts on Curtis Blow before we go, though? I mean, they, they pretty much, I wouldn't say they diss him, but they, they, they established that Curtis Blow was, he was the first solo MC star of hip-hop, but he's essentially just rapping to R&B like the people we've already talked about, the Sugar Hill Gang, Africa Bambada, uh, Grandmaster Flash of the Furious Five on record. So any thoughts on Curtis? Well, yeah, well I, I got to say, look, at one point, George C. Scott, they were talking to him and he became kind of, after he played Patton, had become this kind of right wing lunatic. But he was saying the 60s were the worst, one of the worst things that could have happened to America. And people shouted him down and they didn't want to hear it. But I, I've thought about that ever since because, you know, where I see civil rights and see women's liber liberation, you know, he saw drugs in the Manson family, right? So he just different, different takes on something. So I look at Curtis Blow and there's been this move in the black community, you know, the, the keep it real maneuver. If you went back to the 40s or the 50s and talked to Lord and had 
video interviews with lower class African-American people or working class African-American people, they sounded like me, right? You watch films or videos, you know, my, my great grandmother was a maid. Sounds like me, right? But something happened in the 60s where, you know, it, it became like a mark of authenticity, uh, you know, to identify with your kind of slave roots and your connection, your passage from the South to Chicago or up North. And keeping it real became talking with a Southern accent, which became known as, you know, the black accent. And this is followed. So he's wearing a suit, looking perfectly presentable. He's also doing stuff that's sort of tepid. But, you know, what punk rock did, to, I'm just going to wear safety pins. I'm going to wear this, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to wear shell top shoes. I'm just going to, like I'm like I'm in the street, like I'm keeping it real. I don't know, I don't want to sound like Pill Cosby here, but I think it did a, a disservice to kids who actually wanted to want to read and do something else, which is why it's not in this show, which is why I think that, it, that Wu-Tang was pretty revolutionary because I look at them as fundamentally a literary band, you know? I mean, their antecedents are from comic books, uh, which I consider to be literature, but this whole move of keeping it real shit, and they kind of say it, it's like dog whistly said, but not really said when they're starting sort sort of dissing Curtis Blow, and it kind of irked me. One of the thing is, I remember growing up, you know, when um, that's what I think is so funny about this episode as opposed to the past ones is it's closer to certain things I remember, you know, growing up, right? So I mean, by the time that hip hop hit, you know, more mainstream, and so I do remember my parents, you know, were school they retired school teachers you know, teaching in Washington D.C. and uh, I remember when Run DMC hit and the fashion of shoes with no laces. My mother, who taught in a really – and who also would bemoan. She's like, I remember back in the day, you'd have – you know, the, look at like how it was in the 60s and how you know the guys would dress. They dressed like gentlemen and they'd have everything in sync. And being mm -hmm. part of the street was nothing that anyone – that appeal to yeah. anyone. Everyone yeah. had their eye on, uh, on moving up, on being yeah. better. You did not worship like the person who is just down and out or like on the street, like and especially in neighborhoods when you had doctors because of you know segregation. Yeah. You had doctors next to janitors, next to school teachers. Yeah. You know, on the block when you saw the diversity of incomes, people were trying to be like the best that the block had to offer as opposed mm. to going for the street right the street elements yeah. right so um so when the when uh when i remember when run dmc hit she told me she was like i was like oh those shoes are cool she's like you know why they don't have laces in their shoes alexi i was like why it's like yeah. that comes from being in jail and they take away your yeah. shoelaces so you don't hang yourself so uh, do you want to look like someone in jail who doesn't want to hang themselves? No, then you don't want those shoes. You know, yeah. That's pretty much how I was pretty much brought up. Like, oh, skateboards. Oh, you know, people that uh, ride skateboards normally break their arms and, and, and legs and, and have accidents. That's what happens when you have a skateboard. Would you like to break your arm or leg, Alexi? No, then you don't want a skateboard, dude. <laughs> I like her par parenting through terror. I like it. I Which like I continue it. to this day with my kids. Yeah, I, if it works, you know. But it is that whole dynamic, though, of like, the shoes. I just It's just so, you know the different kind of fashion choices that people made and what they're appealing to. I also remember decades later on Howard Stern, the Afros were on there, which um, DJ Hurricane, who was in the uh, the BC Boys, and was, uh, I think, yep. um, um, uh, Jam Master Jay was on the show. And he was like, what? Howard said, like, where are you guys going? Man, we hop from the streets. Like, where'd you go? Ho I grew up in Hollis. You know, middle class people, we talk in the street. Yeah. You know, it's always yeah, interesting that's like, how he checked Yeah. I mean, this is the whole, you know, uh, sow the wind, reap the whirlwind. They haven't, they kind of just mentioned him in passing with the whole uh, uh, Jam Master J thing. But, you know, <laughs> you know, this is what we see where we see uh, classes, class, uh, classes colliding. So, somebody's getting shot, you know. Yep. So um, I, I don't know if they're going to go into it in a later, a later episode. But I think they, they most certainly should because some people out there aren't playing. They have no place to live that are yet. They have not, unless yeah. I'm oh. forgetting it. But I've watched all four seasons and I do not believe they ever go back to Jam Master J. Okay. Although ironically, vis-a-vis -vis your point about, you know, the old days before desegregation when the upper middle class fled the ghettos, 
Jam Master Jay stayed in the hood and was an anchor of his neighborhood, kind of like Nipsey Hussle in L.A., who recently yep. was killed. And it was apparently, you know, there's all these rumors and nobody's ever solved or really investigated the case. But it was probably people he had known for a long ass time and had helped out a lot. And well, that's you know, what he might have, you know, I, it's funny. When, you... I was, when I was at Howard, the one thing I thought was really interesting, I was a history major, I almost history and philosophy double majored. And the thing that really shook a lot of socially upward Negroes uh, that went to Princeton was you know, at Howard, they were very adamant, like, look, what do you think the civil rights movement was about? Like, oh, uplifting black people. No. It's enabling black people of means to enjoy the fruits of their labor. That's why as soon as they can leave those neighborhoods, they got the fuck out. <laughs> you know? So, it's it's again, I'm not saying that that's, that's all in a nutshell, but at the end of the day, like the, the notion of whole black flight, and I'm going to keep it in the neighborhood and all kinds of like, people are like, fuck that. I want to be able to shop in the same stores that people that are making the same bank as me shop. I want to be able to, yep. like, I'm a professional. I should be able to live like a professional and enjoy a professional lifestyle. So as soon as yep. the opening came and people were like, oh, you know what? Peace the fuck out. That's what yep. happened to a lot of folks in terms of the, the like black I said, uh, Evan, Evander Holyfield when in the the fight book that I wrote when he was like, yeah, I went back to the hood, <laughs> never again. <Yep. laughs> yeah, and none of these cats, you know, none of these cats, they make the Dr. Dre, they, they they get that they don't they their kids are not going to the same schools they they went to. And you know what? I'm gonna defend that. I'm gonna defend that because the problems, the pro, uh, every every immigrant group has come through those same bad neighborhoods and cycled out. Uh, um, okay, there were structural, you know, inequities that, that have made that less possible for the current generation that's there, as well as being renewed from, from you know, I mean, if you're coming from Haiti, it's already a, a, a degraded state. But the reality of it is you, ha you do have, so just say 2.5 of a persistent underclass. Universal basic income is not going to help 2.5% of people who are just resistant. Give them $70,000 a year. It's not going to change their lives. They're not going to, they're not. So, and this is not just an African-American thing. This is trailer parks. There's a certain percentage. You, if you live in a neighborhood like that, you know, I got, I got guys on the corner from my neighborhood persistent. They refuse. They refuse because the, the life of, you know, street life is the only life they know. And they're not, and they're Latino. They're not going anywhere. You give them money, they're not going to use it well. You know, well, you have so some what kids do you do? That suffer like you know go, the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, my parents yep. bought a house in a neighborhood that was historically like a hot neighborhood, like around from you know a lot of theater and art scene because they remember it when they were in college. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a hot historic neighborhood. They hadn't gone to the neighborhood since the MLK riots. There was an opportunity to buy a house in the winter, you know, on a his, you know, big lot and everything. They buy this house and the summer comes like, oh, what the fuck? Where do we move into? <laughs> you know, like, so that's why I'm, one less in the house, like, make sure you never buy a house in the winter, right? You, figure <laughs> out who your neighbors are. So the thing, the funny thing is there are people that would come, you know, because my parents knew how the school system worked in D.C., you can go to school, either a neighborhood school or a school near where one of your parents worked. My father worked as, he was a teacher at Sidwell Friends. So I went to school in one of the most expensive parts of town. Oh, yeah. Kids that came into the neighborhood because it's like, you know, the people that are Afrocentric, I'm going to rescue the neighborhood. Their kids got dragged down and ended up worse than yeah. other people that grew up there, you know? So yeah, yeah, just yeah, echoing yeah. what you're saying, Eugene, you know, these kind of dynamics in place, like I'm going to rescue or I'm going to show or I'm going to uplift, like, you know, good luck. It's one thing for you as an adult to make that kind of decision and there's yep. a certain system that you have in place, but to take a kid who's impressionable and has to fucking yep. survive in an environment yep. where they stick out so my parents are so like anybody else, you're sentenced to white hippie. The white hippies would try to get my mother to put why you why don't you send your school your son to a public school? My mother's like, <laughs> my son is not an experiment. Yep. <laughs> and that was the end to that. <laughs> no. So All anyway. Right. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating <laughs> <music>. So so <laughs> So Simmons is frustrated by Curtis Blow still basically rapping over R&B, and he's not that into R&B. And Run DMC, his little brother's group, DJ Run is his brother. And, and you know, I always wonder why DJ Run was an MC. Mm -hmm. Like as a kid, I was like, wait a minute. Like when I first heard what an MC was and what a DJ was, and I was like, well, this guy's Jam Master Jay's the DJ. Why is the MC known as DJ Run? Turns out he was initially a DJ for Curtis Blow. Mm -hmm. And he, but he was also an MC, and he he forms this group with with Daryl Mac, Daryl McDonald that he that he went to 
school with all the way back from elementary school and discovered that he he was writing rap lyrics at home and jam master j and the three of them become the beatles of hip-hop and the the big breakthrough is is soccer mcs where russell simmons is able to produce the record the way he wants to just mm-hmm. drum machine just scratching and rap and and their look is radical and they credit russell simmons with that that he took him out of those jackets that was nelson george's big quote it was like i think his biggest contribution may possibly have been taking him out of the jackets and when they show the picture of run dmc in the houndstooth <laughs> jackets <laughs> was great. I, you know it, it looks like something pete townsend might have been wearing in 65 66 at the peak of mod yeah, you know three yeah. button suit jacket fashion it's way whack for the 80s but putting them in the classic leather jackets Kanko hat the adidas shoes you know and the rest is history and they, they blow up they get big and then uh and they and they have a lot of talk about how you know like kevin your buddy kevin powell says you know this was music for us this was music by people like me for people like me and i, I think it was I can't remember who was saying that. I think it was Daryl Mack was saying, you know, the civilized people didn't want anything to do with this. But the street people, the people who've been listening to hip hop in the streets, they liked it. And and it was it was a classic case of taking things to the street and being more underground as a pop move. And so Simmons' timing on that was impeccable. And then when he hooks up with Russell Simmons, I mean not Russell Simmons, with Rick Rubin. Uh, you know, the chemistry gets even more volatile because it, once again, it ties in the whole punk element. And you've got Russell Simmons talking a great deal about that. that, that that's the thing I liked about Rick Rubin was he was a rock and roll guy. He hated pop even more than we did. You know, he hated Michael Jackson. He hated all that. He was never going to try to put an R&B bass on one of my records, you know, and, and it, yeah. it's loud, it's noisy, and it's not dance music anymore. That's one thing they don't talk about on the show, but like Dan Charnas and other people talk about, like, this is really where hip hop breaks from dance music and house and hip hop go their separate ways definitively with the whole Def Jam era. It's rock and roll music. It's, it's hard ass music for teenage boys, basically, who want to pretend to be tough and, and which was me, and I loved it. I mean, Run DMC was the first hip-hop I ever came across, which was Peter Piper on the on the Raising Hell album. You know, I'm in Borger, Texas, so I'm late to the party. Sue me. But- yeah, I, I, was already, I was already out by then. <laughs> <laughs> Sucker <laughs> MCs I was in, and then by the time they got it, like, I was like, yeah, fuck these guys. <laughs> yeah, but when I first heard the, the scratching on Peter Piper, I mean, you know, the, the first time I ever heard somebody a recording – you know, a new song made out of a record playing an old drum break. I was just immediately enthralled. And, and you know, that's that's where I got into hip-hop. When did you get into Run DMC, Alexi? Uh, again, when I was a kid and I, you know, because the thing is they had the, the look and also the rhyming. And uh, I think it was more of um, uh, my Adidas like that era, I I got it late. Like you know, growing up, I was listening more to you know whatever my Pat parents Boone? had the radio. Yeah, whatever my parents had. <laughs> no, my parents had the radio. My father was just like pumping reggae out constantly. Yeah, so yeah, it was yeah. like Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, you know. So and then I was more into pop music. Sorry. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> after pop yeah, music, sorry. I was into Van Halen. You know, I really didn't get into I really didn't get into hip hop until uh, the next you know, a segment of this show, like Public Enemy, that's when I really got into it. But before that, it was like, you know, now and then you'd hear, it was kind of like pop music. You, you hear a Run DMC song, My Ideas, oh, I like that. You hear this, like, I like the message more than I liked uh, anything that Run DMC did back in the day. But Yeah. I mean, I got a hold of Raising Hell, and then I got King of Rock, and then I got LL Cool J's first album, and then I got Beastie Boys Licensed to Ill, and I was all in, you know. Um, and and I, uh, two things I, I wanted to quibble. They skip over Houdini completely in totally, this. Do you yeah, think Houdini yeah. merits a mention or any other rap artist from the pre-run DMC era that yeah. they skipped? That that who who else would you? It was just weird know? because it, it's strange that I I understand. Look, I like Big Daddy Kane too. Um, obviously liked Rakim, but to go from Sugar Hill Gang to Grandmaster Flash to Curtis Blow to and Run DMC Kirsten. and then Big Daddy Kane is just I, again, I just watching this series. Well, you know why they did that. Why? Why did they do that? We'll, we'll get to that next time. But there's a reason that they bring in Marley Marl when they do, and one of them is a technical innovation that they talk about, and the other is because he's going to be the foil for Boogie Down Productions. So they need to introduce him 
Um, but then the bridge it, versus and the bridges over happen during this time frame. It, it happens a little later. Mm. I mean, it, it it's it's roughly contemporaneous with I got that shit and, ten and twenty years enemy. late. So that's why yeah, I don't know the fucking uh, timeline. Yeah, but but as far as hip hop evolution, it comes <laughs> a little later. But Marley Marl is going to be the foil for for um, uh, Boogie Down. What's okay. the dude? The main Karis guy. Karis One. Knocking yeah, Karis One. Telling hoes about on their drugs. Yeah. And so it would be, I think, a disservice to history to totally just use Marley Marl as a chump and a villain when he made great records and had a big contribution. I mean, it brings Big Daddy Kane and Biz Markey and this, you know, all these guys. Why not Busy B or Cool Mo D? I mean, it, it's, yeah. in, a, in, a lot, in a lot of in a lot and of Slick Rick. Thing. Exactly. It's just uh, yeah, they so barely mention Slick Rick. I mean, it's yeah, just, just a matter it, of trying I, to cover a lot of ground. I've been expecting them to go into Slick Rick, and if you're going to tell me that they don't touch on Slick Rick, I'm going to be enraged. You about, I think, have seen in this episode all the Slick Rick you're going to get Ooh. in this whole series. Because even the show, I mean, that's the thing. That's... For me, the show was bigger than anything that yep. Run DMC yep. did. That yep. was yep. massive. Like, yep. everybody yep. in my junior high school, like, dance, like, you know, like, eighth, or seventh, eighth grade, like, they were rocking the fuck out. Everybody was listening to the show. And yeah. it was the first one to make it into a major motion picture that didn't suck, as far as I know. It was New New Jack City. I think Slick Rick was hugely influential, yeah, totally. and I, it's a big, yeah, and big I, I love Slick Rick, but yeah. But I, I can see where you want to start with where you want to focus on Russell Simmons because he has this mm -hmm. massive impact on the business and 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 Run DMC, BC Boys, L Cool J. That triumvirate uh, was enormous, and you know, to me, it makes sense, but it's still. It still pains me, and I love Houdini, and and it would have been nice for them to get a shout out, or at least a little montage where they run through. I wonder some if of it's all guys. Canadian thing though. I, I just, you know, I just, I just, I really get a sense <laughs> like watching this shit that it really is like people that really weren't a part of anything when it was going on, and it's totally second and third hand, and they're going. It's more youth than Canadian. Getting, they're getting stuff from people. Oh, let me tell you, oh, interview this guy, interview this guy. Like it's just, it's just too. I don't know. It's just. Uh, I think it's because they're young more than that they're Canadian. I mean, you know, young that's Canadians, even worse. But, but yeah, I mean, they're following, you know, uh, the Chang and and Charnas and other people that wrote the books on hip hop. And when you write the book, whether it's right or wrong, it becomes the book. And you know, you got you know like Ed Piscor's Hip Hop Family Tree and stuff, and he covers a wider range of stuff, but still jumps to russell simmons and def jam in a big way because that's that's what moved units and that's what determined the future i mean run dmc's sucker mcs i mean that's clearly a revolutionary record and, and I didn't an idea until 20 years after it came out but i heard the show it's, oh, I, I, I heard, I, yeah yeah no yeah. i the, uh, yeah anyway but um, let's see what else we need to cover. And so then the next thing is the big walk this way crossover with Aerosmith, which the way that they frame it in this, and, and it did have the short-term effect of really blowing run DMC up. I mean, they go from gold level sales to platinum level sales, to multi-platinum level sales. They go from playing arenas and theaters to playing stadiums. But my experience of it was that run DMC was seen as some sort of novelty act mm. And Aerosmith gets resurrected from yep. the grave where they were perfectly fine. I was perfectly happy digging up toys in the attic and rocks yep. once in a while. Yep. And, and, you know, and I remember an REM compilation where they covered an Aerosmith song and they were kind of embarrassed about it being the effete snobs that they are. And they were like, well, in the seventies, everybody loved Aerosmith. Well, here's the deal in the eighties and nineties, everybody fucking hated Aerosmith because they sucked and they would not go away. It was like, yep. You know, walk this way resurrects their career, and then it's a succession of these terrible love in the elevator. Oh my god! Cheney's got god. a gun. I yeah, mean, just yeah. atrocious crap. But you know, so that's uh, karma. <laughs> that the Bob Rock era was that the guy? Bob Rock was when definitely the producer. Yeah, yeah. That shit. Yes, yes. So you know, garbage and totally just to me destroys the whole Aerosmith legacy in the seventies, which is yep. perfectly yep. respectable. You know, cock rock, but. Well, they had to eat. They had to eat, you know. Yeah. What are you going to say? But, but no. I, uh, the guy I was telling you about last week, David, or two weeks ago, David Dante Trout is a professor at Rutgers. He, there are certain uh, New Yorkers who went out to Stanford. Some couldn't take it and left, and some would make the transport back. And he came back, uh, probably eighty one, eighty eighty two, 
and 82 and he came back he goes you got to listen to this and he played me he gave it to me sucker mcs on the tape I go, who is this? He goes, ah, these guys from from Queens. Yeah, Queens. I don't know if I listen to Queens. No, the guys from Queens. I was a punk rock snob. I wouldn't listen to anything else except hardcore. But I listened to, uh, now we're to 82, 83, listen to Sucker MCs and exactly what he says. And exactly, I mean, it, it was not, it was perfectly, it was a perfectly comfortable listen for me who, whose ear it was just hardcore, 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 really I stepped really comfortably into it and, you know, and I knew about all that other shit, but you know, I had the same problem with disco when it stopped being relevant to me is when I like, Oh baby, baby, baby. And I was out. Okay. So, um, that got me back into hip hop. Mm. So there is that. I actually went to see those guys play probably 83 or 84 when they played sadly with the red hot chili peppers. Oh. And I have to say <laughs> it was one of my worst concert experiences of my life. And I'm not just talking about the red hot chili peppers. I thought rum DMC was really slack live. Cause I was just used to, you know, I was used to, you know, I was used to if hardcore. If you're used shirt, to the power man. of a hardcore band, there's yeah, no yeah. substitute. A lot yeah. of hip hop yeah. artists have been thoroughly disappointing. I've, there's a number yeah. of ones I've seen over the years and just, I wish I'd never seen them because it's just, it's, they just do not frankly, know for some reason, just the stage presence just is not yeah. there. I mean, yeah. I found even Public Enemy kind of underwhelming yeah. live and it was it was strictly the sound because they couldn't pump enough power from the turntables and the drum machines through the big sound systems. They've solved this problem, you know, a few years later, but in the 80s and, and early 90s, you could just not deliver the kind of volume yep. with a turntable and, and drum machine set up that you could deliver with martial amps. It just, yep. it could yep. not be yep. done. And so, yep. you know, yep. I, I wanted to grade on a curve on that. And if you saw a hip hop act in a club where you didn't need stadium audio, it mm-hmm. could be totally religious, you know, I mean, yep. It, yep. it could be incredibly powerful, but one thing I think was interesting, two things before we drop, I think that, um, Simmons was super shrewd and picking up Rick Rubin because the thing they don't go into was punk was not successful. It had all this cultural currency, but sure. it was blacklisted by the big corporations. And hip hop, for whatever reason, was not. And it's the classic sort of thing like in the 50s, early R&B was super popular with white teenagers and because nobody cared what the black people were doing. You know, black people could sing dirty songs. Nobody cared in the early 50s, you know, whatever. That's them, you know. And so hip hop. Run DMC could be radical and punk rock all day and then bring the Beastie Boys in and be mainstream. Boom. You know, the Beastie Boys put out four singles and they're on MTV, you know. And the second thing I want to bring up is I think they underplayed the Beastie Boys here. They totally put them into the puppet of Rick Rubin. You know, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons are the masterminds and these guys are just chumps and they never come back to the Beastie Boys in this series. So thoughts on that. The Beastie Boys deserve a little more credit in hip hop evolution. Um, yeah, the way I looked at it back then from my conversation with him on the street corner was that he was a water carrier for those guys. And actually the brains behind the outfit and the people making a lot of decisions about let's go to the Latin quarter and hang out that we're playing with the people whose names I didn't even know it in, in 80, 81. Um, the driver of that is, is a dead dude. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, who had this idea that I'm going up there, you know, and they were always going to like reggae clubs and they were like, you know, I remember one time they came back and was getting their asses kicked at some reggae club. What happened? And they're like, ah, well, we said we were on the guest list. I said, were you on the guest list? No, nah, but that's not why they beat us up. I go, well, why they, they want to beat us up? Cause we said job put us on the guest list and they fucking flipped out. I was like, ah, oh, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah, yeah, MCA was uh, the driver. And, and I think that, that Rick took a lot of his cues from that guy. But he did recognize a certain type of power and delivery. And, and I mean, then and, and still. And he made a medal. He, he yeah. gave him the clown aspect and and the, yeah. the, the metal Yahoo and thing. and the big and the big dicks on stage. But I I still think his ear his ear was good because the, the same thing that attracted my ear initially to the I mean ladies love Cool James I never would have listened to that guy L O Cool J maybe but there was always steel in his in his his stuff and I know people have worked with him since from when I was at Code Magazine and you know he's kind of a a strange cat but. You know, but he still delivers. I mean, you know, still, still. Yeah. 
And so that's that's it for the first half of this episode. We'll be back shortly, and we'll talk about Rakim, Eric B. and Rakim, who revolutionized rapping and Public Enemy. Who else are they going to cover in the rest of the episode? Don't want Marley Moore. Oh, and uh, Big Daddy Kane. And Big Daddy Kane as part of the Marley Moore subset. It was played, so. it was played, played with my sister, so yeah. and, not, and not in that way. Oh. <laughs> All right. Thanks, fellas. All right. Thank you. Here's Run DMC doing Sucker MCs. And now, a word from our sponsors. I never let the mic magnetize me no more, but it's biting me, biting me, inviting me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. The rhyme will be kicking in till I hit my last note. My rhyme remains a fine, all kind of ideas. Self-esteem makes it seem like a thought took years to build, but still say a rhyme after the next one. Prepared, never scared. I'll just press one. And you know that I'm the solo whistle. So Eric B, make a clap to this. <laughs> And we're back. We're continuing <laughs> our discussion of Hip Hop Evolution, Episode 3, Season 1, The New Guard, Part 2. Last time, first half of the episode, we talked about Curtis Blow and Run DMC, a little bit about the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J. This time, we get into Marley Morrow, Big Daddy Kane, Eric B. and Rakeem, and Public Enemy. We wrap up The New Guard. So, let's see. No. <laughs> you you did remember that we're doing a show, right? Yes, yes, we're doing a show and we're doing it. <laughs> and we're doing it. Wrong. And we're doing it well. Doing it, doing it, and doing it well. Yes. And and my notes, I've somehow swallowed my notes. But the, the episode continues with this we already talked a little bit about it. Sort of a weird disjunct into Marley Marl, which, you know, they they justify including him because of his contributions to sampler technique which essentially his innovation was sampling bits of drum specific drum sounds off records like a snare from this record a bass drum from that record put it in the drum machine and remixing it and he had a series of hits more local hits with 12 inches in new york city with the juice crew but they don't talk about any of that like they jumped to his stuff from the late 80s with big daddy kane and it leaves everybody a little weird, I thought. Did you guys what, – what was your take on that, Eugene? Well, he uh, – Mr. Magic, uh, what was – there was a WNE – not WNEW. There was some AM radio that had Mr. Magic on it, like a Sunday show. And that's where I was first kind of exposed to one of the last summers I went to New York when I wasn't playing with Whipping Boy. And – um, that was where I heard him. So it was weird to not have that in there. And they're, they're big lacunas in kind of Shad's uh, take on hip hop. And yes. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how they made, I don't know how I, you know, I, I it was a, probably a difficult task, right? You don't want a one-to-one -one correlation. You don't want, you know, a history of hip hop to last as long as hip hop has is, is lasted. Yeah. It's not, we're not talking about Marcel Proust, you know? So, um, I don't know why they left it out though, but I think the idea was probably to keep it from devolving into, you know, it's like somebody was trying to do an old hardcore record and the guy just gave up because every time he tried to call somebody from back in the day, all the old vendettas were like, I'm not going to do it. If that guy's going to be on it, if that guy, that guy still owes me that 20 bucks for the, and the guy just threw, <laughs> threw up his hand. So I think that's probably how they made the decision to just go straight to the eighties. And also they wanted to, you know, maybe make transition to, MCs. I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I don't know why they made that decision, but it did strike me as weird. It's strange also Alexa? because that, well, as I'm watching it, I'm trying to figure out if it's something they're going to go back to in a later episode. Uh, and I think that, um, like Eugene said, you know, they didn't want it as long as a history of hip hop. One thing, though, I also wondered whether or not it's because in a lot of hip hop documentaries, there are certain stories and battles and beefs that you'll hear about over and over. And so I wonder whether or not they intentionally left it out because they didn't want to talk about Busy B versus Cool Modi again. 
You didn't want to talk about um, uh, uh, MC Shan. Oh, Cool J versus Cool My D. Right. Or, or Roxanne Shante versus UTFO. You know, they're just, there's so many battles and beefs that really built up the interest in hip hop amongst casual fans and listeners that, um, you know, it's just, it just seems so part and parcel of history, but I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll see yeah. as episodes go on, whether or not they ever go back to it, but it, it was very strange the way they were zigging and zagging. Yeah. And, 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 there's, and, 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 and there are also different types of beefs, you know, I think the cool Modi LL Cool J beef, you know, redounded to both of their benefits. Right. I mean, I don't see it didn't work against them. But when you talk about like a Marley Mall, there are people who are making claims like, you know, I'm living without certain things now because of this. Or alternatively, uh, he has certain things I don't have because of that. And those are the kind of beefs that when, you know, only one person is benefited that are not, you're, you're not going to talk people around that. It's, beefs it of just equals, that's be... so funny, right? I hadn't thought yeah. about that before, Eugene. Yeah. Don't really yeah. see somebody they dust off and put out there and it's like, man, what happened to that guy? Well, that's why, I mean, to, to skip ahead a bit, that's why I think that this thing that's going on now with Mace and uh, and uh, Diddy is so interesting. Mace said, I'm, I wanted to wait till I was in a position to make this make sense. And so I did. And I offered him like $5 million or something for my entire back catalog. And he refused. Uh, are these the actions of a friend? <laughs> yeah, no. Now, that was sort of a compelling, a compelling beef. You know, it's like Michael Jackson and Paul Cartney. When Jackson upped and bought the whole <laughs> the Beatles like, catalog, the Beatles but it wasn't catalog. a public beef. Like, like they weren't making records about the beef, which, correct, which correct, the classic hip hop beef is on record. And and they are gonna. I, I got to spoil. Well, it. I don't know. I, I don't know that Marley Marl was making records about people being pissed off with him, right? So, what did they? Oh, have the they bridge and the bridge is over. I mean, that's that that yeah. whole yeah. MC Shan. Do they eventually get to that? Oh yeah, they're okay. gonna. That's in fact, that's my whole theory. Why Marlon Marl is in this in the first place is because they're right. gonna give Boogie Down Productions a, a whole, virtually a whole episode. Oh, uh, okay. And, and Marlon Marl is gonna be basically the chump in yeah, yeah, yeah. that story. So they've got to give him uh, give him some love. Damn. But the the way they do this by talking about Marley Marl and basically introducing him as, you know, here's a guy who made this important technical innovation, and he produced Big Daddy Kane. But they don't mention the Juice Crew. They barely mention Bismarcky. They, they don't make, mention yeah. Roxanne. They don't mention MC Shan. Slick at all. Rick, Rick, Slick Rick. I'm going to mention Slick Rick here as many times as I can because I thought that was fucking horrible to leave yeah. him out. Yes, yes. They, they, Slick they, Rick you know. and Dougie Fresh, right? They're the get, you know. Yep. yep. You yeah. talk about like introducing like the idea of a human beatbox. And for a lot yep. of people, it was, when I mean, you talk about the seminal things, right? Sort of run DMC, like how Jam Master J, everyone when Jam Master J died, you know one thing that people didn't appreciate was Jam Master J was the first DJ most people had ever seen their fucking lives, you know, that weren't part of hip hop or of rap at all. Like for Run DMC, they were so big that he was like the DJ, the original DJ for most casuals. So, um, you know, when you have these kind of situations occurring, um, you know, yeah, and 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 also the that Slick Rick Dougie Fresh record was one of the first hip hop records to get sued for copyright infringement because he he sang little snippets of other people's songs right. like an yeah. old song, uh, the only Japanese song to ever be a number one hit in the U.S. in 1963, and somebody had covered that in R&B, and he sang a little bit, and then the R&B person who covered it sued him, and they had to redo the record. So if you have like the yep original slick rick dougie fresh record from 85 you have something that you can barely you know they they, they play whack-a-mole with it on youtube where they're taking it down for copyright strikes yeah. so yeah now there's definitely reason to talk about slick rick but you know they can only fit so much but what they choose to do is is bring in big daddy kane and then which again to me is just kind of i guess to me he does sort of stand in for a number of new york rappers and he was a pretty skilled MC was one of the yeah. first baritone MCs, and you know, along with another Marley Marl stablemate, Heavy D, that they don't talk about, you know, had a certain appeal to ladies. But again, I, I don't know. I felt like that they it was were, in the Madonna sex book too, you know. So I guess a certain yeah, crossover yeah. thing. Maybe in he Canada. was good friends with he was good friends with my sister, and she says that he was a perfect my sister, who's a, a Grammy winning singer that uh, he was a perfect gentleman. Well, good to know. Good to know. But again, 
when they're comparing him to Rakim as yeah, peers, yeah. was that a bit off for you guys? I don't, I don't think so. at the at the time, it, not necessarily, because I remember back in the day when people were talking about the best MCs, you would have Big Daddy Kane in the conversation. You have some of the Big yeah. Daddy Kane, Rakim, KRS One. I mean, so Big Daddy Kane was in the mix for a while, you know. Um, well, they were they were they were famous for different reasons. I mean, you know, the stuff that I mean, <laughs> Big Daddy Kane's raps were were fairly sophisticated and intricate, um, but his personality was never as heavy as Rakim's. You know, it was yeah. uh, there was a there was a certain heaviness to Rakim that, that you know that just was was not going to be trifled with. You know. Yeah, and so you know, but but. I don't want to diss Big Daddy Kane, and 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 he is important. And and I like the quote from Craig G that Kane put together all the principles of a great MC, which was cadence, the level of coolness on the mic, and punchlines. So yep. you know, but then they get to Rakim, which what was that? What was that line about? His his name should be a verb. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> that was a good one. But then they get to Eric B and Rakim, and I gotta say, first off, they don't talk about Eric B at all. Yeah, and to me, yeah. the 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 sounds on those records was what got me excited. Like paid in full with all those samples on it, and then the, the Ofrahazi, remix man. of it. I didn't I didn't know anything about Ofrahazi till to Eric B and Rakim, right? Yeah, and so like to just and also they were the one of the first people to use James Brown samples as the foundations of hip hop records, right. and. None of that is in there, at least not in this episode. But they do talk about Rakim's being influenced by John Coltrane, which is something yeah. I didn't know beforehand and I found really interesting. And then going back and listening to his stuff, yeah, I mean, his cadences are crazy. And the way he was singing the John Coltrane song, like, you know, dude clearly knows his stuff and, and is able to translate that verbally. Thoughts I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The line that made it for me was. I still don't still don't know the move but the money <laughs> which I don't think you can seriously don't think you can underestimate how much of a job description robber was <laughs> in 1977 you know 78 like late 70s New York I mean that was like you know you had neighborhoods where people you know well that guy is a junkie that guy you know and everybody had and the guy like the best person to capture this kind of in a comedic way is Dave Chappelle via Charlie Charlie Murphy, where it was like the guy who, who, who robs a dice game. It's like everybody knew it was him because it was always him because that's the neighborhood <laughs> robber. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or his crackhead Tyrone was like that. You know, you carjacked me. It wasn't me, Rhonda. Yeah, exactly. It was it was you. I know it was. So everybody had their neighborhood. Like if your house was broken into in my neighborhood, it was Ernest. You got Ernest. <laughs> <laughs> could you give me back? Could you give me back my TV, Ernest? It's kind of, well, man, I'm sorry. I, I, I maybe I know somebody who got your TV, and every guy would bring it back, you know. So uh, I thought that that was his line was still not not the move, but the money. It was no doubt in my mind after hearing the the the, the manner in which he delivered that that maybe he was that guy in his neighborhood, you know. Uh, well, you know, with uh, Eric so. B though. Um, I think I don't know if it's also with the beefing between Eric B and Rakim, right? The word back, well, one thing was if you listen how uh, and Rakim would say uh, "easy on the cuts," Eric B, no mistakes allowed. And some people thought yeah. that was a slight to Eric B, for like "don't fuck this up," right? Yeah. So that's one thing. Another thing is the word on the street or the suburbs, depending where you were, was um, <laughs> Rakim had a falling out with Eric B because Eric B was dealing drugs. And mm. Rakim, as a five percenter, didn't like it. Yep. And so that's you know where there was a schism that was occurring between. Them. So I, I don't know if that's true or not, but that's you know back in the day. I see. So they could be in a situation where you can either get Rakim or Eric B, exactly. not both. Yes. And you got to get but, Rakim. But but who was it? So he was either Meryl Streep or Madonna <laughs> somehow name checked Eric Eric B because of his great all time great quote, which I've never forgotten, and it was like. Uh, I've never said I love you to a woman, but I did say it to my Rolls Royce. <laughs> like, uh, oh, okay. Oh, it, you know, your Rolls Royce is not going to leave you for another man, I guess. You know, so unless he gets repoed. 
<laughs> That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the, but, but as a duo, is great because for Eric B back in the day too, like he just had just that presence and that glare, like just straight up, just looking at the camera. You know, there's, there's a hardness that Eric B and Rakim brought to the table, uh, yeah. and a realness, and that uh, you know, it's just funny. Like over time, I'll show my kids certain videos, play certain songs, and what resonates. And Eric B and Rakim to this to this day resonates. Whereas other people mm -hmm. are like, eh, this is corny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you compare them to EPMD or Stetsasonic or whatever, and there's just no. I mean, I remember the time coming home with the cassettes, you know, and they seem comparable, but it just. I doesn't. don't. I want to see what EPMD. E EPMD is great. They're yeah, that's great. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah but they're not Eric B and Rakim. I mean, well, if you're tired, you know? then go take a nap. <laughs> yeah, but 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 you know you know the fundamental difference between those two is that uh, Eric B and Rakim was subway music. And EPMD was befitting kids who lived on the island who had cars. Mm, that's where was car from. music. That's where, yeah. that's where they were from. Yeah. The heavy, ba heavy bass sound. That was does not. You're not listening on the train. That's that was driving, and it makes sense that later that that uh, uh, Eric. Uh, yeah, it was not Parrish. Parrish was a, the guy who robbed Eric. That Eric went in to open that that rim store out in the island. <laughs> you know, it was like clearly. Yeah, they knew cars. They knew cars living in Brooklyn. Come on. And speaking of cars, DMC has the best quote of this half of the episode, which is the story about how I remember I was in my Cadillac <laughs> back from tour. I got more money than God. My sound man gets in my car at McDonald's and says jokingly, I know somebody better than you. I kicked him out of the car, but I kept the tape. And then put it in. Here's Rakeem for the first time. And it's like, what was on your mind in that moment? And he's like, I'm over. <laughs> <laughs> this is hip hop. We're something else. I'm over. Yep, yep. And I don't think I've ever heard a major rock star just admit it, you know, yep. like, yep. you know, I mean, yep. I, I can't think of anybody else that was, I can think of lots of people who are overtaken by a successor, but I've never heard them talk, just openly admit, you know, I heard, like what, I heard, I heard Jack, Nichol Jack Nicholson do it. Um, where he was talking about the younger generation of actors to another actor of his generation. It's like, these kids are coming for, and I, I, I think I'm done, man. Wow. I think I, I'm, I'm over. And but I, Nicholson I think, was like 76 at the time, right? <laughs> no, no, he wasn't that old enough. I think it was before A Few Good Men. And I think one of the cats that he was talking about was a Tom Cruise, which seems kind of laughable to people now, but whatever. That's what he thought at the time. Bringing some star power, bringing some star power. So, any any last thoughts on Eric B and Rakim before we move on to Public Enemy? Nope. No, nobody, nobody. All right. So then, they 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 tell the tale of Public Enemy. You know, suburban kids from Long Island out doing a radio show on WBAU with Bill Stepney as the program director. I love the way Stepney introduces Flavor Flav. You know, he, he, of course, they talk about Chuck <laughs> D first as the mastermind. But then he's like, and there was this character with him who was a musician and a DJ and an MC. And he had a hat that said, I'm DJ MC Flavor Flav, which was a lot to put on a hat. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was good. Yeah. And, and they get across the basic concept of how public enemy. Which was their genesis was being DJs on the radio mm, in yep. Long Island and Queens, um, broadcasting to Long Island and Queens and doing sound collages and rapping. And they put together the Public Enemy single, which Rick Rubin got obsessed with and, and took months to talk Chuck D into signing. I've often found that the people who um, like members of the media make good musicians, <laughs> right? Like boys. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a huge fan. Uh, but Marilyn Manson started life as a journalist, yeah. right? Um, radio DJs, I think. You know, Flavor Flav and Chuck D. I mean, I think the way they Quite approach music. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's it, it's much more granular. I mean, and they're listening with much more of an ear toward analysis than somebody who's like, I want to be a rock star, you know? And oh, that's right, me. <laughs> I, I knew we would get back to you eventually. I was uh, wondering uh, when that would happen. Well, it was jujitsu. I, I I lulled you into, and then I hit you with it. Right. You better watch out, uh, Nate, because you know John Nash last week just he's he might still be showing the lumps. 
uh, on if the shoes fit the way Eugene just jujitsued his ass. It was really bad. It was really, really bad. Be prepared. I'm not, not going to wonder into any of that foolishness. But, but my big thought about the coverage of Public Enemy in this uh. is that they leave the bomb squad out of it entirely. Mm, they barely yeah. mention the Shockleys. Yep. And that's it. And they, and they have a quote from Bill Stepney that you know talks about the the vision that, that, that finally sold Chuck D on doing it as a recording entity was what if the Clash and Run DMC somehow merged? What would that look like? What would that sound like? And that's what that's always been the capsule description of Public Enemy is it's it's a hip hop it's the Clash as a hip hop band, but they don't talk about the Bomb Squad and they don't talk about how innovative their sonic assault was. Nothing, yep. nada, zip, and so I don't know that that was extremely frustrating to me. Did you guys notice that as well? Or yeah, I thought I, I expected that there would be something with Terminator X, but you know, I, and then then the Shockleys, and I, I, but then I, I think if somebody came up to me and said, "Listen, you've got twelve minutes to talk about mm. Public Enemy." What you decided, what you're going to keep on the, what you're leaving the cutting room floor, what you're going to put in. I think maybe I would have made that decision too. I mean, we're interested, but if I'm making a general interest, you know, uh, documentary, would I put that in? I don't know. I don't but know. But they spent seven minutes talking about Marley Marlin and samples. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's again one of these uh, a weakness from. It just seems like there's a disconnect throughout this series. There's a disconnect between the music and what's going on in the culture and what's going on. You know, not necessarily you have to be in New York, but there are certain things that if you are a, a hip hop head or a fan of hip hop, there are certain things that you know and things that are lacking in almost every episode. And again, it just seems more like, I don't know if it's a generational dynamic or like the people doing this doc or generation, they weren't there or they weren't connected to it. I don't know if it's, mm -hmm. uh, I always pick on the Canada thing, which I think is making things a little worse as well. But there's certain things you talk about the bomb squad. Like if you were here during the time of public enemy, you experience the impact that the bomb squad had on music. And you saw how there were situations, for instance, like Paul's boutique and the beastie boys. It's like, Oh, the best. Like, wait a second. They were jacking the bomb squad, you know? So Again, it's 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 like a fan of a fan of a fan, as opposed, you know, it's just it's just too many generations, I think, or or uh, or steps away from Kevin Bacon, that uh, shows itself whenever they're doing stuff. So I think, like Eugene said, oh, if you're given 12 minutes, what are you going to talk about? And I think that's where the pro producer would come in and would fill in certain gaps or certain holes instead of going on this kind of weird a ride that's an interesting ride until you realize what they leave out. And you're like, hey, well, why were you spending all this time talking about this? We clearly missed out something that was bigger. You know, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, I think the Bomb Squad um, handling or lack thereof was based on that. Also, the question is, if you were in the Bomb Squad, do you imagine that the guys are pissed off about it? And I imagine mm. if I were them, I would be, you know. Yeah, so this is like the tour. You're right. Going back to, this is a tour of winners. This is a tour of, kind of like a feel-good tour. Uh, again, not having seen, you know, any other season. But for this season, it is like everybody that seemed to have done well as opposed uh, – Grandmaster Cass, maybe not, but they have to deal with him, I guess. I guess that's the closest. Well, and now with his son dying from COVID, that's, but that's another story. Yeah, and that was well after, well after that. But let's do a little bit of the context. Do you all remember when you first heard Public Enemy? Yes. Yeah. Eugene, um, tell us um, um, Henry Rollins turned. He used to. We had enough of a friendship where he used to make me tapes and hand me tapes. And he's the one who introduced me to uh, Swans, Einstein's and Neubaten, Diamanda Gallus, and Public Enemy. <laughs> Which Public Enemy? Um, it, it, it was. It was. What was there before? Before that, no, no, no. Before the show, yeah, Yo Bumper Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was on the cover? It was just the logo. Yeah, it was them around the turntable, light like a bright light in the background. I think of them looking down. Yep, yep, yep. That was that was the one he introduced me to. So, 
Yeah, yeah, that was what I, I got a hold of that first cassette because I read about it in Rolling Stone, which of yeah. every true hip hop head was. Yeah, I was reading Rolling well, Stone. Wait, 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 it's, it's sort of, it's sort of, I feel like, did that actually really happen? But the, yeah, I had the tapes. It's still around here somewhere. It's like, I how? Well, but you know, he was, Rollins is now a DJ too, right? So he's still d tied in to music in a way that a real fan is. So. And Alexi? Yeah, it was, how did you, for me, it was It Takes a Nation of Millions. It was that. And then once I heard that, it blew my fucking mind. Like, that was the, you know, sometimes there are certain uh, tapes, or tapes, right? Records of tapes that you would hear certain recordings that would really resonate with you. And for me, the the biggest, I'm, I'm going to show you just how mainstream I was. Prior to that, the only group that had hit me as hard as that was Van Halen. <laughs> Which Van Halen? 1984. Uh, no, it was 1984 was what got me. Then I went into earlier Van Halen. But so you're a Van so Halen. No, 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 I was totally Van Halen. <laughs> yeah. And then um, no, no, no. and then when it takes a nation of millions came, which just blew my fucking mind. That really, I mean, there were hip hop songs I would listen to and stuff that I would like, but I, I just it takes a nation of millions. Just I just fell so into that album. That to me, it was just, I went on a hip hop path and didn't turn back maybe until the, yeah, I didn't turn back until maybe the mid aughts, you know? So that was for me a so total, was your was a total but paradigm but, but, shift. But you know, the line that made that record for me? So I went out and I actually bought Nation of Millions myself. Like Rollins got me started on it. So I went out and bought it myself. And I'm kind of listening. But it's a weird kind of ephemera that makes a record for you. And I hit the line that got me, and it was like, fuck. It was like, um, no, you can't have it back. You, you silly, silly rabbit. rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, was, yes. That was like three or four cultural reference points yes. in one line. Yes. And I was like, oh, my God. And so, you know, then I started paying attention, like much like with Slick Rick, which even to this day, I listen to Slick Rick, and I'm like, has that always been there? I'm always it's like an onion. I'm always like stuff layers on layers and layers of kind of cool. Are oh, you with the bomb squad? Like the fact that they would yeah. have the we all get on down now. They're the Fred Sanford. Yeah, right, like right. they totally right. they were right. hitting on all of the yeah. cultural yeah. cylinders, yeah. all of them. Yeah, and also I'm old enough to remember people like Joanna Chesimard and you know, mm. so it was like I'm making reference point. I used to read H. Rep. Brown, and we were, our family was friends with Julius Lester, and my mom was friends with. Stokely Carmichael, which is not his name now, but you know, so it tied it all in. And and yeah, I mean, public enemy definitely elevated my consciousness, you know. Like nobody was talking about that shit in the eighties. You know, Run DMC was doing the whole Mr. T don't do drugs, kids. And, yeah. You know? Yeah. Should, and, do you think? And, do you think? Do you think they should have uh, touched on the P Professor Griff, Elijah Muhammad thing? I think they're going to get to that later. I or Louis Farrakhan. Sorry, they yeah, yeah. got. They got. I don't think they get into the Farrakhan bit, but they got to get more into into the downfall of PE. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. and and Griff. It wasn't like the total downfall, but losing Griff definitely was a stumble. One well, of you know, my cousins was David Mills, so he did the interview that fucked him up. Oh, oh I didn't know that. Yep. Ah. yep. So well, it's you know, your you know what's hey, you know what's hey, hey. <laughs> hey, but you know what's interesting? I had the occasion to to interview a celebrity who was doing stuff like that, and I had them make a David Mills decision, and I decided that I didn't want his slop dirtying up my magazine, and that I was gonna do, I was gonna save his career by not talking about it, wow. and that's what I did. So. I wasn't a real journalist like David Mills, who should I should have reported on it, but I was like, you know, fuck that, man, fuck that. Well, the I don't crazy thing is, I don't want to lend any, yeah, I don't want to lend any weight to this CEE, this line of thinking at all, even so. Well, when David had to, you know, they they had like uh, he had to appear at Howard University, and I was there to address the scandal, and they're like, are you gonna go to my uh, speaking age? Like, oh yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I I'll be see, behind I see you there. I was like, oh yeah, sorry, I had class. I couldn't. Uh, I'm behind you 100. Like way, way behind you. <laughs> uh, we stand oh, by the campus <laughs> yeah. over there. So yeah, yeah. yeah, so that's our that's that's basically uh, episode three, season one, hip hop evolution, the new guard from Run D from Curtis Blow all the way to Public Enemy. Next time. Gangster rap in the West Coast. So we'll see. Will they mention Schooly D? We'll oh.
PSK, what's it mean? <laughs> Find out next time on Let It Roll. Nate, Alexi, and Eugene will be back next week with a discussion of Episode 4 of Hip Hop Evolution, The Birth of Gangster Rap, which takes our tale to the West Coast and introduces Ice-T and N.W.A. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www. PantheonPodcasts.com It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.